eat the rich. Neolibs are a bitch. Medicare for all. Bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I am Julia Clare. Hello, Kate. Hello, Julia. This was such a incredible week in the Reply Guy universe. Twitter's top Reply Guy was banned. The Reply, Trump guy, is, the reply guy in Chief himself. Yeah, he, he was... Probably the greatest reply guy of all time. I mean, some no of the one, shit. No one that has he ever tweeted. done it like Donald yeah. Trump. I loved when he used to tweet about the haters and the losers. Like when he was like, "Oh yeah, uh, you know, Happy New Year to everyone, including the the haters and losers." The haters and the losers. <laughs> once, once he tweeted something like, "Happy, I hope everyone, I hope everyone is having a beautiful day, even the haters." And the losers on this very special September 11th. <laughs> yeah, he was fucking. He really. Nobody did it like him. Uh, pull yeah. one out for for the big guy. And then all of his fucking reply guys now, like their whole life has like been thrown into chaos, not being able to reply to Trump anymore. Like, what's that guy like Brooklyn defiant dad going to do anymore? <laughs> I saw that like. Eugene Gu, MD, and he's a Trump reply guy. He posts like, you know, one of the early replies under uh, Trump's tweets has like half a million followers at this point. This is like part of a many tweet thread, but this is the one that caught me. This was the cost I had to bear for speaking out against President Trump in the public form under his tweets. It's been painful to bear all the cyberbullying and false accusations after over the years, but it was worth it because I love my country and will always fight to protect it. And that's so fucking funny to me that somebody <laughs> is like, I'm replying in a fight to protect my country. Right. <laughs> that's the reply guy mentality in a that, fucking nutshell. Absolutely. I mean, the heroism that that our reply guys are uh, are exhibiting out there in the trenches of online. We salute you. The cost that I had to bear for speaking out against President Trump in the public form under his tweets. Like, that's what an amazing way to say reply. Like, also, I, it's I like, posted my thoughts in the public form under your tweets. Also, he's acting like... <laughs> He's acting like it just happened passively, like he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> like, I received so much scrutiny just because I very publicly replied to the president's tweets. Yeah. Like, that was your choice, my dude. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, like, I, I'm i really wondering what is going to happen to the resistance grifters. Like, basically anyone who has made wealth fame even a job in some cases for themselves solely by things like calling trump like a diaper dawn and like you know like little hands orange cheeto jesus or whatever like what the fuck are these people gonna do yeah i i, I kind of feel like what they're gonna do is keep the grift going and just keep posting about 
Trump, even once he's out of office and like they're just not going to be able to let it go. Yeah, I think that there is a certain brand of poisoned uh, liberal (laughs) who uh, who will never be able to stop calling him the Cheeto in chief or some shit. I definitely think so, too. And it's like it kind of reminds me like in a way of those like, you know, those like libs that like fucking hate Bernie Sanders. Like, yeah, you'll see people post on Twitter. They're like, you know, just like I'm trying to think about, you know, all you Bernie bros, you know, or whatever. And it's like Bernie Sanders hasn't been running for president for like more than six months now and also like the last thing that he did was like try to fucking fight really hard to get everyone pandemic relief in the form of a two thousand dollar check like how like how poisons you have to be to just like let that resentment last for sometimes four five years yeah no completely i those people have been retweeted into my timeline and it's like he's on if he's like a guest on a radio show they're like great i won't be listening (laughs) get over yourself (laughs) um but to uh, i guess one one bright spot is that i've been seeing joe biden still talking about the two thousand dollar checks so it seems like that is something that could be could be coming down the pike once he is 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 sworn in and once the the new senators from Georgia are sworn in. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Um, you know, Joe Manchin has expressed some opposition to it. I can't remember if we talked about that on the we show did. or not. We did. Yeah. We did. I But then also yeah. fucking Christian Cinema, you know, like you said last week, maybe some of the Republicans will still vote for it. But you know, the thing is is it's just like Man, if anything, this this like, you know, storming of the Capitol, which is the subject of uh, most of this episode, it's just to me how people cannot look at that and see the consequences if the Democratic Party, you know, goes full, uh, you know, full extreme neolib in the way that they, of course, will. And like, don't give people the two thousand dollar checks. Do not come through on the student loan relief. Continue to let millions of people not have health care in the middle of a pandemic. Like those are the fucking guys that are going to be yeah. in charge, you know, like those QAnon Nazi clowns, like they will find someone worse than Donald Trump to elect in 2024. And the only chance to avert that is by at least providing people some material relief because they got elected on that. That's the only reason they got elected. Yeah. You know, anyway, do you want to talk a little bit about our guests this episode? Sure. I would love to. We're very excited this week. To be joined by Brendan O'Connor. He is a freelance journalist. He's been a, a columnist for The Baffler. Uh, his work has appeared in The New Yorker. He is great on, on Twitter, which is how we judge everyone on this show. Uh, he's a great follow on Twitter. Um, but he most recently wrote a book called Blood Red Lines, kind of about how the soil for the alt-right has become so fertile in the United States. And as you might imagine, with the events of the past week, there's a lot to talk about there. 
Oh, as a quick sidebar, uh, one last piece of fun, kind of fun news uh, is that uh, Congressman Ted Lieu and Mondaire Jones, former guest, uh, have petitioned the New York State Bar Association to disbar Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I thought it was gonna. I thought it was gonna be some real lip shit, and you know what? It was, but it was funny lip shit. Funny lip shit. They can be funny sometimes. Also, Rudy Giuliani should be disbarred. No, Rudy been... Giuliani fucking sucks. He I just mean dis- when you said. When you said Ted Lou, I was like, where is this I going? Know. <laughs> I know. No, I, underst- I understand. Yeah. But sometimes Ted Lou can can do a fun do a fun thing for us. A, so. a loop de Lou, if you will. <laughs> um, OK, well, uh, enjoy the episode. We will see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Welcome back to Reply, guys. We are very uh, excited to be joined this week by uh, freelance journalist and the author of the new book, Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right, Brendan O'Connor. Welcome to Reply Guys. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I know this is your, today is, your book was officially released today, was was it not? But officially my book is released a week from today, but they moved the okay. launch event up a week given the uh, attempted fascist self-coup. Uh, right. Okay. So, which is incredible. Great. Great timing for you. Um, really couldn't, couldn't be better. Yeah. You uh, clearly were, you know, on the horn with the fellas saying, <laughs> I need some press. Uh, and that's great. We love that for you. All press is good press. Um, yeah. So I, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, which you know, because I've been trying to get you on the show forever. And then I just kept... Uh, dropping the ball, but I, I knew also that we was had... dropping the ball. To be fair, that's the, tr- okay. To be fair, to be fair to the listeners, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I really thought that this week would be the perfect week to talk to you, uh, much for the same reason that your release date was pushed up because <laughs> of the uh, the attempted coup that happened last week. That um, you know we're all still trying to figure out, but. Um, as I understand it, and I'll let I'll I'll let you sort of sort of take it away. But um, you, you your book deals a lot with how the you know the folks that we that we saw storming the Capitol and the like really nativistic Trump supporters are deeply intertwined with the billionaire class, um, and that just sounds rife for uh, a lot of upsetting information uh so i'll i'll let you i'll let you take it away uh and give give a more or a more thorough synopsis but i'd i'd love to hear um your your book sounds so so interesting and i can't wait to read it and i i, I would just love to hear more about it yeah no uh i mean it is oh i i mean i think upsetting is probably the reaction that I'm going for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. But also, uh, you know, I want, I want my readers to be ar- to feel that they've been armed with knowledge um, in, in, the, in for, for these in the class struggle. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so this is a book that's sort of the culmination of um, a few years of reporting that I've been doing. I started covering the far right at the end of the Obama administration. Um, 
sort of picking up on a few different currents and tendencies uh, that had been building um, in that time and started um, kind of looking at the linkages between the far right street movements, uh, things like the older like militias and patriot movement, but then also the kind of very online um, so-called alt-right and Gamergate and these kinds of um, what I would call like proto-fascist um, formations and, and movements and kind of figuring out like, all right, like what is the relationship between these things and the wider ongoing uh, crises of capitalism. Like, is, I mean, I, first of all, like, is there a relationship? But, like, my intuition was like, there's something going on here. You, you um, had a hunch. <laughs> can, I, can I ask a follow up question to that? Please, please. So, please. okay. You use the term proto fascist, which to me mm. makes sense. Um, there's been a lot of debate on mm. the left. Uh, you know, really all around, but like on the on the left these days, I think that people are uh, rightfully concerned that uh, labeling these groups fascists or terrorists will lead to, you know, the Patriot Act too, or mm. um, like a kind of domestic anti-terrorism measures that will predominantly affect like Muslims, Black and Brown people. Uh, the expansion of the police state. And so I see that there is like, um, I, I see why there's, you know, a uh, well-intentioned rhetoric to uh, why there, I see why there's a well-intentioned reason to not call these folks fascists. But to me, it's like, they are fascists, <laughs> although yeah. it's a really complicated term. And so I was just yeah. wondering how you see that whole debate. Yeah, I mean, and then there's even the further debate about, about like, is is that term even if there's like a kind of tactical and strategic debate like what okay is using these terms politically a good idea is then there's the kind of wider historical debate is like is this like are these appropriate labels ideologically to describe yeah. what's happening here um i do think that it, it would like i guess i'll make a distinction like i do not favor uh like pursuing the like discourse of like calling them domestic terrorists. Um, I do, I do agree with the, the analysis that like the category of terrorist is intrinsically a, a racist one and like will ultimately redound to just like strengthening the security state. If that's the kind of path that we go down. Um, I don't necessarily know that the same. Well, I definitely. I definitely disagree. I definitely would not agree that <laughs> the same can be said of like the label or the category fascist, because that's something that is a, you know, that's a historicized like political tradition. And the reason that I think it's appropriate to use right now is kind of at least twofold. Like one, you know, there are, there have been like since the kind of classical period of like European fascism, like there have been plenty of like lunatics who've like called themselves fascists. But what really makes it dangerous is the kind of combination of people pursuing these like fascistic ideas at a time when the 
historical conjuncture like allows for these kinds of ideas to flourish yeah. and for like a movement to be built around that makes uh, a ton of yeah. sense. And then right. just one follow-up question here. Um, like, what a question, too. How would you define fascism? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, it, that is <laughs> a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I know that there's a lot of debate and not one answer. I'm just wondering, like, in your own, uh, your own thoughts, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that fascism is... Sort of, I think that we can define it as a mass movement that mobilizes traditionalist ideas about hierarchies, specifically racial and gender hierarchies, mm-hmm. to create a um ultra nationalist cross class movement that is based in <laughs> the petty bourgeoisie uh and that advances a critique of capitalism but is not anti capitalist that's like the simplest like i can do <laughs> i was i was trying to when you no when you said that i was trying to imagine that like on the the merriam webster page and i like yeah. you know just like this one needs a paragraph but no yeah. I, I get you and i'm on the i'm on, on the same page uh we know? actually do yeah we do a lot of gotcha journalism here so yeah. that's that's what that was name mm. one news publication <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're about and you said that you've you've been covering um, the alt right since the end of the the Obama administration, and it's my understanding that like white supremacist groups, like organized white supremacist groups, flourished during the Obama administration and saw like record uptick in membership, and that that has just kind of not died down. Um, since then so is is that part i mean you know i there's been a lot of reporting on you know the how especially these groups have used the internet to um and to kind of expand their membership and you know the daily stormer which is one of the most prominent uh alt-right neo-nazi publications uh is calling it a publication is it's a website it's it's like it's a blog (laughs) but um like they they've had record traffic in the past 10 or 15 years um and does that kind of intersect with the phenomenon that you that you have been observing as well yeah um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, part of the, the project of the book and the reporting that I was doing that kind of has led me to work on this book, um, is trying to understand, like, what is the relationship between all of these different groups? Like, is this a movement or are, is this just a kind of like fractured thing? I mean, one of the interesting things about um, 
some of these statistics is that, like, I mean, the folks at the Southern Poverty Law Center do lots of really good work. Mm. But sometimes the statistics that they put out can be, can obscure things a little bit insofar as, like, yes, there were record numbers of far right groups established under the Obama administration. But that doesn't necessarily tell you a whole lot about the membership of those groups and like mm. how many people, because if you have like one group with 50 people that splits into two groups with 25 people each, it's not actually a growth in the movement. Um, you know, we see this a lot on the left, <laughs> the, like, splits and, and, and secession. Um, but I do think that it seems clear, all of which is to say that like, Putting a hard number on who is a part of this movement or how many people are a part of this movement is pretty hard to do. I think that it it seems clear to me, at least, that that the far right uh, did not, in fact, recede under the Trump administration. That in fact that it continued to grow, um, and to experiment with its political activity, um, by which I mean to say that we've seen lots of different kinds of tactics being pursued, um, to the point where my interpretation right now of what happened on Wednesday, that is to say the, the storming of the Capitol, is that you had a kind of mass demonstration of like hardcore Trump supporters somewhat spontaneously pursuing this like cathartic, uh, confrontation with the capital with you know with 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 the state really but then among the many of these kinds of maybe more inexperienced demonstrators you had cadres essentially of like hardened street fighting proud boys and organized militia members people who like know how to move through a street protest on how to how to direct people where to be where to position themselves um in order to take advantage of chaos um and that is the result of the growth not just of the far right generally but of like ideologically committed disciplined organized members of the far right who are with in fits and starts pursuing a long-term political project that is not just defined by like cathartic expressions of violence. Cathartic expressions of violence is a very important part of their political project, (laughs) but that is not the increasingly, it seems like they're just getting better. And that requires some like more long-term thinking um, that ought to be pretty scary. (laughs) Yeah, it does seem as though certainly, you know, since I was a teenager, 
when I became aware of, of these, these things that the far right is getting a lot more organized. So it seems, yeah, to me. Is there a, sorry, is there, is there a fight happening in your building? There's some, it's something, it, it's pretty late in my hallway. I don't, I don't really know what's going on. <laughs> Tell them it's Welcome a pandemic. Plot, Come on, man. <laughs> no, part, no frat parties in the uh, hallway. Excuse me, I'm recording a podcast in here. Excuse yeah. me, podcasting? I don't know if you know that. Um... We are usually interrupted by our cats. Uh, yeah. Not usually well, bros, she, but definitely here, cats. Oh, nice. oh, you have a cat she, too? She might, she make an appearance there. Great. Okay. So we... Solidarity with with all of our cat comrades. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We, they're a big part of our show. Mm-hmm. Um, as they should be. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it does seem as though not only is the far right growing the alt-right growing that they are also getting more organized which is um pretty terrifying and um i think what i was reading is that you know in in your book you you kind of touch on the they're not comparable but like the the movements on the left that have um sprung up like occupy wall street and black lives matter those are very different because they've never had the support of the donor class. <laughs> um, and even, you know, I, I listened to this season of, of slow burn, which is a, a great um, kind of investigative journalistic podcast. And th- this season was about David Duke, the rise of David mm-hmm. Duke in, in Louisiana. And in order for David Duke to become who he was, he had to get a lot of buy-in from, you know, the traditional establishment Republicans. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is something that even though our movements on the left are based in like justice and equality and things like that, we, because they don't uphold the power structures, we, it's very difficult for us to get that same sort of buy-in wherein, whereas even though, you know, the alt-right and neo-Nazis like David Duke are fascists and throwing around some really like scary ideology and, and and perpetuating a really frightening worldview. Ultimately, what they want would uphold the status quo for the billionaire class and for, you know, the powers that be. So is that I mean, I assume that's that's like the main the main reason why we're we're struggling on the left is because we can't get the backing of the billionaire class. <laughs> yeah, that's probably that's like our first problem. And once we figure that out, then we're uh, it's then all we're, over. Then it's all great. over for these hoes. <laughs> we are. I it's love game it. Yeah, over. once we get the backing of the billionaire class, it's over for you, hoes. It's over for you, hoes. <laughs> Jokes on you. Yeah. I, I I think I think that's exactly right. I think that. Um, it it would be important, I think, though, to be clear that in this moment, um, the relationship between the uh, emerging nascent fascist movement is 
and the the relationship between that movement and the establishment of the Republican Party and the kind of institutions and para, the paraparty organizations, um, although they have a lot of ideological alignment, there are significant contradictions and uh, and 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 fractures um, that, in a way, having Donald Trump as the president kind of forced a like forced a degree of reconciliation mm-hmm. around um, that now I think we are going to see these fractures widen widen um, and it's not really clear to me how that will be resolved. I think that like, for example, something that we can think about, and this is an important kind of dynamic that I try to explore in my book is that, um, like I said, kind of most, if not all fascist movements have a kind of ultra nationalist character to them and are, particularly concerned with upholding and protecting not just like the sovereign bound boundaries of the nation state, but like uh, a particular, like defending a particular idea of nationhood, mm-hmm. which is almost always racialized. And in the United States, obviously that necessarily means like it, like that, the nation, like nationhood and whiteness are like deeply interrelated. Um, and like immigration is obviously then like a threat to this, uh, insofar as it threatens to, in sort of vulgar terms, like dilute the value of whiteness. Um, right. Because there's in, it's my understanding having just, this is, I studied t- uh, 20th century Germany in college uh, <laughs> oh, so you know about all this. <laughs> I, I know, but I, but I, um, a big part of fascism is also on, you know, obviously does deal with the nation, that idea of, uh, of a common kind of a common lineage in some mm-hmm. way, but also on a more micro level, like upholding very traditional family structures, mm-hmm. um, And it's interesting to see, because to your point about immigration, there is a lot of criticism from people on the alt-right of like, oh, they're uh, like immigrants have so many kids. And then there's this like horror about how the birth, the birth rate for white, um, for white people is, has dropped precipitously. Um, in America. And so those things are like very, it's, I mean, you saw this in, in Italy as fascist Italy as well. There were like, you know, medals given to Italian mothers who, uh, gave birth to a lot medals given to Italian mothers who fucked a lot. (laughs) And, and guess what? That's what we should all aspire to. We support that. (laughs) Medals for fucking. Yeah. Well, let's rebrand the congressional, Medal of Freedom, and let's do it. 
Um, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, 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 you're absolutely right. Like this, this, this is a, this is a deep anxiety and, and fixation. Um, but just, just to, just, just to kind of conclude the thought, like the thought, but it, I mean, it is related. Like that, this, this focus of the, 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 the ultra nationalist fascist right is in contradiction with the imperatives of capital insofar as, and especially like, 21st century capital and 21st century, which is an increasingly, um, globalized system where mm. the, like the boundaries of nations are useful to global capital insofar as it creates, you know, sort of like differentiated labor markets and consumer markets. Um, but like being able to move around, move capital around the world with ease and the idea of a kind of global economy would seem to contradict the kind of like 19th century idea of the nation state, um, mm-hmm. and, and national sovereignty that, that these people are really, really kind of, um, I mean, fetishized in a way. Yeah. Uh, and, that's why they a lot of them use globalist as a pejorative. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh well, also because right. it's code for Jew and yes. those it's people. Yes, it's yeah. code for Jew, <laughs> and boy, is that important. <laughs> <laughs> um, gotta gotta have that. But then to but then to your point about kind of the anxiety about birth rates and reproduction. I mean, yeah, like there, there's all, there's, there's like, this is, this is one of the things that unites, um, the, the fascist right, the kind of more like libertarian right, the like establishment conservative right. Um, you hear many different versions of what is ultimately just the kind of like white genocide. Um, yeah. Uh, fantasy slash nightmare um and this is given expression and support through like in lots of different ways it's one of the things that they align on which is to say like having like a really brutal orientation towards like women in general but also like particularly like migrant women of color um Mm -hmm. uh in so far as that threatens like the sanctity of the white family and the ongoing, like the perpetuation of like white nationhood. When you um, said the uh, sort of got a little bit off track. I just have to say that when you said the sanctity of the white family, I just imagined the most lawn chair ass situation. <laughs> uh, just like a fucking Frito pie or some shit. Yeah. Why am I being classist on a leftist podcast. I How don't dare know. You. These K- are my K- people. These are my family. But yeah. you know, there's just something about something about a white supremacist that it just feels okay to like make fun of the uh, that stuff. I don't know. Well, I do think that like I think that you are kind of pointing to like an important dissonance, which is to say that like it is about like the 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 idea like an idealized version of the like bourgeois nuclear family that like very few people actually access even yeah. like bourgeois people <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's like, definitely, not really real 
No, I, that is the underlying uh, core of what I meant and what I think is funny about the situation. And I'm so glad to hear you explain that back to me in a way that. No, no, no. I was saying. No, 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 no. I wasn't even being sarcastic. What I feel good about is that uh, my wokeness has not been compromised. My joke <laughs> was actually woke. This isn't a podcast where we say the R word. We are not. No. Uh, we're not that kind of. We're not we're that kind of show. No. We're not like the we're not the dirt bag left. We are we're the you know we're the we, lotion left. The moisturizer we're the lotion left. lotion left. The uh, <laughs> the cat owning left. The cat owning left. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can't don't 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 step to us. We have so many cats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are so many cats. Um, yeah. This is. I, I, I mean. Wait, I think. Which, we'll, do you see? Oh right. boy, do I! Like there she is. She's Look a tiny at... baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, she love my cat. What loves to be a pie too. Okay, I love her. She's anyway, li- she's just, she's she's sure very she's very literate. She's well read. We love her. <laughs> um, I think what we've seen and what we saw over the course of the Trump presidency is that, you know. You know, there was a lot made initially about the differences between like the good old established Republicans and these um, kind of radical alt-right types. And, you know, they're, you know, the, uh, you know, the Proud Boys and and all of that, like everything that happened um, both last Wednesday and in, you know, in Charlottesville. But what we saw time and time again is that they like are kind of establishment Republican members of Congress uh, voted the same way. They like they voted to advance time and again, pretty nakedly nationalistic legislation that was put forth by the the president. Um which was like pretty explicitly seemed to be appealing to that far right sensibility. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think that what we've seen over the course of the Trump administration is that, you know, ex- exactly to the point of your book that the, that when push comes to shove, the establishment will side with the alt right because it ultimately upholds. Yeah. And not um, just, not just establishment, Republicans either. I mean, I feel like centrists often end up aligning sure. with the fascists sure. if given the choice. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, th- I think that that can be true. You know, you say like when like when push comes to shove. I think that you know part of this story is that that alignment is precipitated by the threat real or perceived of an actual anti-capitalist left. Right. And so like given like, you know, left to their own devices, the capitalists don't really want to have to deal with fascists. (laughs) Like they would rather kind of dictate things on their own terms. And I actually would maybe disagree a little bit. Like I kind of think that the overall story of the Trump administration, um, is like the extent to which the ruling class was able to like discipline Trump and the 
Trump-aligned parts of the Republican Party in so far as, like, like all of, like, Trump's, like, worst excesses on immigration policy, for example, came through executive orders, came through appointments at different federal agencies that carried out policies. But, like, it's not as though he was able to, like, reinstitute, like, national origins quotas. Um, yeah. Which, like, Jeff Sessions had, like, pretty, like, explicitly said he wanted to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, yeah. But, like, that, like, and, that and doing, change. doing, right. And doing away with, they also really wanted to do away with, uh, birthright citizenship. Yes. Which is, like, a, I mean, I grew up having to hear a lot of, like, conservative talk radio. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, an, it's an obsession, an obsession. Mm. Birthright citizenship is something that is just like it uh, gives people gives people on the right like a crazed look in their eyes and yeah. um yeah I feel like I feel like we <laughs> we're never going to going to hear the end of that um in this country that that debate but uh, yes and and as it as it happens it's actually uh, there's a big section on my book about that um but uh, to underscore the point, like the alignment and the alliance between the the centrist, as you say, and like like cent- moderate centrist liberals and conservative Republicans with the fascist right is that like that calculus, that decision gets made when a robust and militant anti-capitalist left, left is part of their political calculus. Like when they decide like, okay, like we actually, like we need to shore up the defense of capitalism against, <laughs> against the socialists by getting into bed with the, with far right, like with the, um, you know, parts of our, but by empowering the parts of our coalition that are willing to use, um, <clears throat> you know, that are willing to use street violence, that are engaged in paramilitary operate, uh, organizations that are, you know, acting outside, do, pursuing like extra legal, um, uh, kinds of, uh, <laughs> activism, um, to defend the status quo. Which is something that like a conservative or a liberal is like never going to be able to bring themselves to do, but they'll get the fascists to do their dirty work for them. Yeah. And that's like I don't actually think that we're quite there yet, but like the seeds of that, um, it seems to me are very much uh be- seem to be beginning to sprout. Yeah. I would completely agree with that analysis. Um seems like the the research that you did for this book is pretty robust and um so my i i had a question in all of your research for this book what was the most or what were some of the most surprising things that that you came across or that you didn't know before uh before diving into this topic that's a great question um two two things immediately come to mind one being directly relevant to 
defensive of, of last week. Um, and that's the kind of like long history within the far right of struggles and, and, and ideological, um, contests over the question of their orientation towards law enforcement and like how to what their, what their analysis, basically what their analysis of the state generally and like the repressive apparatuses of the state are, um, and how that has, like, they've been very interested to, to learn about how that has, that has shifted over time, um, and like under what conditions and what circumstances it shifts. Uh, and I think that while on January 6th, while we did see many instances of like deference and cooperation between Capitol Police and, and Trump supporters, and the point has been made a thousand times and will be made a thousand times more that like obviously the, the police uh, always treat um, right wing demonstrators uh, differently than, than they do leftists or just like any black person. Um, like there was a lot of violence between the people who participated in the, 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 the siege and the storming of the Capitol and the police. And that to me indicates a pretty profound ideological shift, ideological shift and practical shift insofar as like these are the people who six months ago were up in arms about cries to defund the police and you know, uh, like losing their minds about, um, about the, the summer's uprising that now, like, they, like, they literally killed multiple cops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, these things feel so related, actually. Like, it doesn't just feel like hypocrisy. Like, I've been thinking a lot about how these, uh, two, two, uh, I don't want to say movements because it's very sad to think of like these people as a fucking movement. Um, But like, you know, I feel like these uh, ultra right wing people that stormed the Capitol like are basically like reacting to the George Floyd protests this summer Mm -hmm. in large part. And they're like kind of trying to, you know, it's like, well, you guys got a lot of people out. Look, we can get a lot of people out. And that actually like, you know, it's a. it's beneficial for the ruling class um, because we are going to potentially be able to see these like, um, you know, additional restrictions on protests, uh, additional um, domestic terrorism laws. And that, you know, that will probably at the end of the day have more of a negative effect on the left. And so it's like, you know, these like whether it's like billionaires or even like the petty bourgeois or whatever like they're going to benefit from it in either situation you know yeah absent (laughs) absent a you know uh, a mass movement that can create a different outcome it doesn't it doesn't like necessarily have to be so that they like end up resolving in the favor of the ruling class like that is like it the fact that it so often does is like a testament to their power and to, to and a testament to like the left's weak 
Uh, yeah, no, I understand. I'm just being a pessimistic socialist <laughs> right now. I understand it might, you know, it might not work out for the ruling class. We might. I mean, you're probably, yeah, you're probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's just like, yeah, things. Things do always seem to work out for them. Things they change, are... babe. Like <laughs> the ruling class uh, to the left, track. to the left. Yeah, they really, you know, things. Uh, the the Lord seems to smile upon them very regularly. So, yeah, I, I, it's, all all of this is very scary. Like the, I mean, I would call the alt right and their ilk a movement i think that you know even though it is it's depressing to say that it's it seems uh to fit the bill you also said at the the beginning of of our chat here that you you don't you don't want your readers to completely despair you want them to be kind of armed for for what's next figuratively speaking no I don't know, parody, man. The, parody, the, parody, podcast parody. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the, the SRA, the Socialist Rifle Association, I, their numbers are only growing. So that's, well, I, so, so I guess what keeps you going, keeps you moving, moving forward with all this? How do you, like, do you feel that the information that you know now has kind of like armed you for, for what's ahead? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's two. There's kind of two questions there. Like, how do there I? There are. I'm so. I'm how sorry. Do I, how I, do I keep? How do I keep going? Uh, I'm the worst person at a Q and A. I just asked a two part <laughs> question. How do I keep going? Um, I draw inspiration from my comrades every day. Uh, <laughs> but really, like, I think I would not just like emotionally and psychologically be able to have completed this project and to do the kind of reporting that I do if I didn't feel like I was a part of something bigger than myself and like contributing something of use to people engaged in the struggle for a better world where uh, like not not just like to defeat fascism but like to create a world where like fascism can't even exist um mm-hmm. in like in the first place if that makes sense um yeah so yeah so 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 that so that's how i keep going i mean i so i think that for those of us on the left like whatever kind of ideological historical political tendency or tradition you identify with like being organized is the most important thing and like being a part of a whole that is bigger than you um like that's what enables me to push through periods of 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 depression and despair um and I do hope that, like, to a certain extent, some of the stuff that I've written about in this book is, well, I hope is of maybe some, like, historical value, uh, just in terms of, like, documenting it. I think that some of the practical questions that I, like, 
wrote about people grappling with have kind of passed. Like the like the moment, like we're in a different kind of historical moment. Um, but overall, I do think that I have like picked up on some like tendencies and trends and like social forces that seem to be moving in a particular direction that like offering a pretty, if I can be somewhat, if I can toot my own horn a little bit, just like a pretty like granular um, analysis of like, what is the compass? Like, what is this thing? Like, what is the composition and the character of this thing that's happening um, give some indication of like where it's going. And like, like at least in New York, like the democratic party is our kind of like proximate <laughs> our like proximate enemy. Um, like they're the obstacle to power here. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in a national context and for that matter, in an international context, like the array of forces that ultimately are that ultimately that we have to grapple with, especially if we are like serious about like building power, um, is much wider than like the Brooklyn Democratic machine, which is like scary in its own way. <laughs> but yeah, like, um, is you know it's like that's a specific thing, and there's a there's a whole like. Um, uh yeah there's a whole there's a whole there's a whole there's a whole world of of um there's a whole world of class enemies out there that we like need to understand um if we are ultimately going to be able to overcome them class enemies are everywhere that's the takeaway from from this interview um (laughs) i i'm I'm, uh, i even have some class frenemies you know Uh, absolutely um I guess, you know, kind of one final thing that I have been thinking about this week a lot is uh, I'm 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 really curious where where QAnon is going, where Mm. this all leads. And, you know, like, obviously, the numbers are are really growing. Uh, A lot of QAnon accounts were just banned from Twitter. I think I saw like 70,000 of them or something, which was hilarious because like PragerU lost like 50,000 followers. So there was just like a giant overlap in interest. But, you know, um, yeah, I guess just like where does QAnon intersect with so many of these movements? And, you know, it's just like where where does QAnon go now that like Trump is leaving office and uh, I don't know, like what? Because just a lot of people were motivated by the fact that they thought that that was like the storm as described in QAnon and like. What else can happen if I was a Nazi, which I'm not, but just as like a thought experience or even if it was experiment or even if I was like in the FBI, what I would do is find a way to like mobilize QAnon supporters towards my evil ends, you know, and. Mm -hmm. It just seems like to me like there's a very uh, high risk of that happening. Yeah, I mean, I won't really even try to like venture a guess <laughs> about where I think QAnon is going to go next because uh, I do not understand <laughs> QAnon like even a little bit. Okay, um, so so this this clears up something that you are not Q. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm not, but also if I were, this you is wouldn't what tell I'd us say. anyways. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, I'm on to your game. Um, no, I mean, I think like this, like the 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 influence of conspiracy theories and like the communities that that have been built around conspiracy theories, the like QAnon conspiracy in particular. Um, you're right. It like it has its tendrils in, uh, like innumerable realms and and spheres, um, and is functioning as a kind of like bridge, but also a tent, <laughs> but also like the fabric that connects all kinds of things. Like I don't really know. I I I still have not. I do not feel like I have a grasp on how QAnon is working and how it relates to the kind of wider constellation of, of, of far right, of, of, of the far right. I do think that it is likely that the inevitable frustrations of being disappointed by like the Q fantasy will lead to like despair and radicalization by like adherents and members of this community. Um, and they will be, I don't want to say preyed on, but like, uh, that will be, that will be exploited yeah, by, absolutely. by others on the far right. Um, I think this is kind of what you're saying, Kate, that like, uh, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if anybody's going to like, step in and try and like direct the Q movement or Q and on community in one direction or another. But like there is already so much overlap between all these different groups that like, you know, they're like, you know, it's like any movement. Like there are people, like there are people that are organizers. There are people that like will recruit. There are people that are going to say like, they're going to say like, okay, like, well, this, like this, this explanation for like the way things work that you thought that you had, like didn't quite pan out the way that you thought that it was going to. But like, we have another explanation, which is that like actually the Jews, um, right. And, <laughs> you know, the, or, a classic, yeah. Yeah. a classic. I mean, it is um, Taylor's so, oldest yeah. time. So I, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know where, I don't know where it's going. Uh, nowhere good. Uh, I don't think that like people are going to like snap out of this mass delusion. Um, I actually think I, and I think that's like a very like, I don't know. I think it was like Buzzfeed that made like a big announcement that like their copy department was like making a ruling that like, we're not going to call it a conspiracy theory anymore. We're going to call it a mass delusion. And I understand kind of why they would do that, but also I don't know, that like connotes to me the idea that like, yeah, that like people can just like snap out of it. Like, I don't think that it's going to happen. I think that they're just going to keep going, keep going down the rabbit hole. Um, yeah, no, it's like it's it seems like a situation that would require like a massive kind of culty programming, which yeah. seems unlikely to me. <laughs> people yeah. are very, very invested in it at this point. Uh, and it's definitely concerning me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well, what a week. What, what a week. Uh, folks. Life. What a life, folks. What it's been. The millennium has not been good. <laughs> um, Brendan, 
we just we want to thank you again so much for for talking to us uh i can't wait to read your book where can our listeners find you uh your listeners can find me on uh <laughs> on, on on twitter um, hell yeah <laughs> uh, hell yeah at, don't be emb- don't be embarrassed at unders- we're all friends here <laughs> at underscore grendan with a g g-r-e-n-d-a-n and they can buy uh blood red lines either through the haymarket books website itself or preferably through something like bookshop.org or inbound or powell's uh is a a good union bookseller um if you have to do it on on amazon that's fine but but don't don't, don't be a scab. <laughs> <laughs> My personal preference would be if you, if you would not do that. Um, this was such a a cool and upsetting conversation for so many reasons. Uh, but I learned I I really I learned a lot, and I can't wait to uh, to dive into your research more. Um, yeah, thank thanks very thank much. Thank you so much for coming on this show. This was. Like Julia said, it was really, really great. But I have my own opinions. I'm not a QAnon person. (laughs) I don't just think whatever Julia thinks. I came to this conclusion independently. uh, Where we go one, we go all. (laughs) Where I go, I go by myself. Because I don't support QAnon and I'm a loser. Um, Where I go, I take my cat. Yeah. And that's it. Um, All right. See you later, everyone. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land.